0: Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests, This is Screen Therapy. Addiction, Substance Misuse, Substance Use Disorder No matter what terminology we use, when you pile another mental health condition onto addiction, we have what's called a comorbidity, and it's more than twice the battle. Ian Huluviak, aka Killy Idol, lives with addiction and bipolar, two mental health conditions that fueled each other and caused him extreme depression and mania. Substance use would inflame Ian's bipolar symptoms, And his bipolar symptoms would drive him to substance use to dull the chaos of mania or pull him out of a crippling depression. A desperate catch-22. Ian is now in recovery and has learned that having a drink or going back to drugs, behavior that's comorbid with bipolar, could take him to places he might never come back from. Songwriting has been Ian's most productive outlet since being in recovery. Singing about his past is painful, but it's also a crucial part of his healing.
1: My name's Ian Kolubiak. I go by the name Killy Idol. That's my music project right now. And I'm here in New York. I've been in plenty of bands. I grew up playing in Screamo and hardcore bands and playing in VFW halls and in our town, at least where I grew up in North Brunswick, they had this little social club. We would go and play there a few times and all over the state. My mental journey, my mental health journey There's a lot to it. I grew up very depressed and I could never really pinpoint why. And I am the son of an immigrant. So my dad, his dad was in a concentration camp. And then when they were liberated by the Russians and the family met back up, my dad was born in a small internment camp and then he immigrated here. My sister and my two brothers and I are first generations on my dad's side. With my dad and his family, there was always this sort of darkness to it, but it wasn't really depression. My dad, who's had this crazy life history, never really had the chance to feel out his mental health. He was never afforded the time to go and take care of himself in that way. When I was growing up, bringing up things like mental health, those were topics that we avoided. My mother is from the South and she is half Lebanese. They were a very tight knit family. Regardless of that, they still didn't really talk about their mental health. So you have two parents who didn't really understand mental health and who also didn't really acknowledge it, trying to deal with a kid who had bipolar one disorder, but never had it properly diagnosed. And so when I was younger and the depression manifested around when I was about 13 and I started having, there was a suicidality that sort of cropped up in me and that was during this whole emo phase so you know I found a community that I fit into this is when MySpace was getting big over the years when I was about 16 and I started a screamo band and we played on warp tour and we did all these cool things and everyone in the band had their own mental health issues in New Jersey around this time when I was 16 and this was the era of the guido you didn't go around talking about your mental health
0: So when you were young and you were dealing with depression and these symptoms of depression, it sounds like you didn't have a name for it yet. What were you thinking about that? Did you know that there was something going on? Did you know about clinical depression?
1: Well, yeah, I knew I was depressed. I didn't know anything in the DSM, so I didn't know about bipolarity or the chapter that would deal with me. But even though I didn't know, I always knew that there was something that was really wrong about it, something that was very blue and dark and about me that a lot of my friends didn't seem to have, that I didn't play in bands with, like friends that I went to school with, who I grew up with. But I remember before I was 18, so it was around 16, 17, I went to my first inpatient program. And that was the first time that I think my family started taking it seriously, that I finally had a name that I could put on it. And I remember that was the first time that anyone ever told me I was an addict too. So when I went in to this inpatient program, I was like wasted the day that I went in. I remember because I I got pulled out of school and I got sent to this place. And I remember the night before I partied really hard with my friends because I was really nervous and didn't have school the next day. So I went in and I was hungover slash still kind of wasted and they labeled me with alcoholism along with major depressive disorder, alcoholism and anxiety not otherwise specified. And so those were the first times that I really had an inkling what was going on with me. And that was when my mother started taking it far more seriously. But my dad still wasn't. My dad still didn't really understand and I'd never blamed him for it. I mean, how could he? He was this immigrant who, product of World War II. I mean, this these are things that are so far removed. I mean, he was the oldest dad out of any of my friends. I mean, he was like in his 60s when all my friends' dads were in their 40s not that i didn't get along with my dad i love my dad he's like one of the greatest people on earth but there were things that they could do with their dads that i couldn't really do with mine like my dad was like a isolated dark figure he never was depressed per se he just like i told you about that eastern european cross to bear yeah that kind of person but the addiction thing was the thing that really hit me from left field, I didn't really know I was an addict. I didn't think about being an addict. I thought it was just the kid drinking and doing drugs and all this shit. But I remember the first time I did cocaine, that was like my gateway drug. That was I did that when I was like 18, and I remember the lights brightened up and the world opened up, and I knew that I had something really bad that was happening, and I knew I was going down a tunnel that was
0: going to be a long way to the end. A lot of folks talk about drugs and mania and how they mirror each other. Folks that have bipolar mania have a heightened reaction to drugs and can get into a whole lot of trouble. Uh, What was your experience with that?
1: So this was obviously before I knew that I had bipolar one. And my mom was actually one of the first people to plant the idea that you might have bipolar disorder. That's what I thought your whole life. And I'm glad that someone at some point introduced it to me people with bipolar one disorder are very much predisposed to addiction and to using. And I remember, like I said, with cocaine that opened up the world for me when I got to college, there was like some responsibility there going into college. And I almost got kicked out the first semester because all I did was do drugs and get fucked up and wallow in my depression. And, and I had a band that I was doing in New Jersey. So, Every weekend, I'd have to get on a train and go to New Jersey and spend the entire weekend at the drummer's house. So we'd practice and then I'd get the train and come all the way back. And then at one point, I got caught with drugs in my dorm room my freshman year and I got kicked out for like a month. And I had to kind of wander around New York, staying with certain people. Stayed with a dealer once, stayed with some friends on their couch, stayed on a bench one night in New York. You know, just things I didn't want to tell my parents because they would have been world-ending That would have been the end of my college experience. I would have been brought home. I would have probably had to go into another inpatient program and all that, which honestly may have helped. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have because the next few years were just, they're lost. I don't really remember them that much because I started experimenting with heroin around that time. I started getting into Xanax. I started getting into a bunch of other things and going to raves. And I really fell into the underground of New York. And it felt like something that I was supposed to be a part of for a very long time. So when I found it, I went really hard into it. The drugs, when you did them for the first time, like the cocaines or, or Dilaudid or anything like that, they feel so good. It's like the world is now opened up to you. There's now another side that you can enter. You can experience the world through the lens of drugs instead of the lens of sobriety. And because sobriety was so painful and it was so depressing and it was so hard to navigate because one day you'd wake up and you're manic and you're manic for like a week and you get two hours of sleep at night and you feel great and you feel like you can do anything and you make horrible decisions. And I would have like a week's long depression where I couldn't get out of bed, couldn't go to classes. I couldn't really do anything. There was one point in college where some of my friends actually sort of sat me down and said, you're an addict, dude. We all do drugs with you and everything, but we do them in a social setting and you're in between classes railing a line or you're doing this and that. And it's the first time anyone really sat me down that was not an authority figure to tell me, hey, you know, we think you have a problem. And of course, I didn't believe them. I almost thought and this is where I I, I hate to mention it is because I thought it was cool. I felt cool doing drugs i kind of felt cool being this outsider in the group of friends that i had but it's painful to be that outsider and do drugs and to be depressed and try not to bring it up to your friends and all that but when i got out of college i joined the band that got signed to atlantic records that took me to a new level that was the end of it the end of my mental health well-being that was when i really got into using it i really got into some shady shit. and i started hanging out with really bad people and i this was when i like really, really actually started to do the downers the dilaudids and stuff like that and i think i was like 23 or 24 that was when i had my first overdose and that was a, an intentional overdose that was i remember it was like everything came together it was i was manic i was completely sober. felt like I was extremely high. And I just couldn't take it anymore because of the different people that I was every single day. I just threw back as many pills as I had, which were like Delauded, Xanax, some of my antidepressants and some other things. And someone found me, a girl that I was dating at the time were dating. You know, we were just kind of using and sleeping with each other constantly. When she came into my apartment, and found me and brought me to the hospital for about a year after it was really hard to just exist because it felt like i was supposed to die there and i really wanted to and then that's when i started this other band that kind of brought me to where i am now that was the way of helping me process all these things was creating this new band called the
0: worst humans that was the first time it all came to a head it's interesting that you mentioned a suicide attempt when you were manic because i think a lot of folks think that Depression would be the time when you would do that. And of course, some folks do attempt when they're depressed. I've often told people this, that the mania, in some ways, it's like another form of depression in the sense that it's just as bad, it's just as out of control, it's just as bleak, it's just as scary. I think people think that maybe mania is the time when you get to run around with your clothes off and have a ball. But for me, it's very disturbing and desperate. Do you know it's always sunny in Philadelphia?
1: Glenn Howerton, who I'm a massive fan of i remember he talked about in one of his podcasts and he said you know one of the things that i don't want to get rid of is my mania i actually love my mania and i remember thinking well you are fucking alone on that one buddy because that mania is what made me broke it's what made me make the most horrible rash decisions of my life huge career moves without any sort of thought or consideration behind them because you're manic and you can't really process your thoughts all that clearly or that quickly and it's funny like you said because people would think that your depressive episode would be when you would try and commit suicide but the mania is when i feel like i'm so uncomfortable in my own skin i want to jump out of it i feel like i can't get comfortable i can't relax and I snap so quickly with people. I mean, anyone who stands in my way from doing anything, if it's like going to the bathroom or trying to release a song, is just pure anger just flowing out of you because you're just, they're stopping you from continuing this mania, from continuing this uncontrolled
0: energy that you have that's kind of displacing you and all your decisions. At the support group that we run here in BC, Someone brought up, have we ever thought about bipolar rage? And (laughs) is there such a thing? And here we all are just nodding our heads. For me, it's right on the cusp of feeling stable and going into a manic state, is when I start to get really irritated and not a nice person to be around.
1: Yeah, of course. My entire life, I always knew that if any relationship I ever had with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a male friend or a female friend platonically i knew at some point i am going to act a fool and i'm going to lose these friendships and i always had this horrible anxiety about it because i just knew the mania is going to come out they're going to see it it's going to freak the hell out of them and they're going to go running and it always happened it would be some time where i'd just be i'd be like overly aggressive almost with how manic i was and it would push someone away or i would say something Really ridiculous. And I have an aspect of OCD too, which is like this rapid cycling of thoughts. When you're talking to someone, you're like, I want to have sex with them. I want to hit them. I want to marry them. I want to kill them, you know, and, and rapid succession. And so those two coupled with each other, I just knew maybe not so much today because today I'm medicated and I'm sober, have taken control of it. But I just knew anyone I met, I was going to make an, a complete ass of myself at some point. And I never knew what was going to happen. And I just knew that once they saw it, they saw the mania, they'd
0: leave. And it happened frequently. And of course, the alcohol and drugs, for me, pushed it over the edge. Also, I found that a lot of times, if I was manic enough, the alcohol and drugs wouldn't really do do anything. anything.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
0: (laughs) 100%. There were times where I would drink
1: and it would feel like I'm just not getting drunk. It would just feel like I'm in this... I don't know how you're when you have mania, how it feels. But for me, it's like every breath I pull in, it feels like this extreme lightheadedness. And it's almost like I'm seeing stars because I'm like (gasps) trying to get all this breath in to continue this, this crazy sort of path that I'm on when I'm manic.
0: It's been quite normalized that, you know, alcohol and substance use disorder, which I'm not really a big fan of the word disorder, are comorbid with a lot of other mental health conditions. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Definitely. When I was younger in my early 20s, there was a lot of self-medicating. There was a lot of using when I felt a certain way. The drugs were an answer to a lot of things. So it was really hard to quit using because one, you feel extremely anxious about to have a panic attack. So you go out and have a drink. Well, now you're sober. You can't have that drink. What happens when you go through that point? When I look back on it now, it's like, how dumb could I have been? How Out of touch was I that I couldn't see that one was comorbid with the other and they were walking hand in hand. It's so easy to see now and it's easy to stay sober because I know. I know that if I have a drink, it's not going to end with one drink. It's going to go on to a second and then a third and then I'm going to be trying to get cocaine. Or, you know, I know that it's going to put me in a certain mood or take me out of a certain mood. So it's just better to abstain from it altogether. It's the first time in my life where for a year or two, I've been the consistently same person waking up every single day and going to bed. I don't wake up feeling like I'm one guy going to sleep as another. I'm waking up as Killy Idol every morning and going to sleep as Killy Idol. And that was something I that I'm just so happy that I have now. I don't have to worry about who I'm going to be tomorrow.
0: What was the process of getting clean, especially when you're dealing with Mood episodes going up and down. And I know for me, when I have a full fledged mood episode, I lose control. So the things that I'm not supposed to do, I tend to go back to doing. What was the process for you? I did
1: go to a rehab of sorts for a couple months. This was in 2019. And I got sober. I was sober for about eight months. And then the seasons changed. And then that was what really put me back in the wrong place. I remember. For New Year's, I went with my family to Northern England, one of the most beautiful places I'd ever been to. And I love all that folk music, and I love all that stuff that comes out of Ireland and and England and Scotland. And so it was this really revelatory trip that I took, and it was great being there for New Year's. But the moment I got back, it was like the worst depression I'd ever felt in my life. I don't know why it happened, but I fell right back into using heroin again. And I remember when I was using and I was dating someone who I'm still dating today, who was the love of my life. We started living together and it was just impossible to hide that I was using. I would leave at random points in the day for an hour or two to, to go pick up and she wouldn't know where I was or would be acting very strange. And then I would be sick with the withdrawal for three or four days. And I was getting sick constantly. So she knew something was up. And then I remember the way it all came tumbling down when she told my parents and that my parents had to intervene and she broke up with me and took it all away and she kind of pushed me into this bottom that I needed to get to so that she herself didn't need to get so caught up in helping me because she shouldn't she shouldn't have to be this is not her issue she shouldn't have to feel like she is my caretaker that is awful to put on someone and I'm really glad that she Pulled herself out and told my parents, she was like, It's now on you, dude. It's on you to do something. I'm out. I can't fucking be around it anymore. And that harsh bluntness that I need in my life, I need someone to just say, Look, you're going to ruin your whole life if you keep doing this.
0: The songs you're writing as Killy Idol are looking at the transformative years of being young and what you went through, I guess, in reflection. What was that process like looking back?
1: For the song that just got released, Wannabe. I wrote that a few years ago and when I was using. There are other songs too that are going to be coming out that are in dealing with that same thing. I don't want to say that it's cathartic to do so because I consider myself an artist. This is kind of what I have to do. This is the only thing that I can do. I can't survive working in a 9-to-5 even though I have worked a 9-to-5 for years. So when you look back on all these songs that are in dealing with so many heavy things like a mental health and addiction and all that it can somewhat be hard to sing them or to perform them because they were so central to how I felt oh so many years ago and that was the way that I expressed it and I got it out of me and so to have it out of me and be detached from it it can be strange playing these songs and singing them and Sometimes I even go back and I want to rework some of the lyrics because they just don't reflect how I feel anymore. But then there's so much of it that I like to keep that's kind of like a snapshot of a moment in time in my life that I think someone else could really benefit from hearing from. It may stir up some rough feelings that I have to deal with on my own with these songs. I'm glad they exist and I'm glad that they're going to have life and they're going to come out and people are going to be able to hear them and... Interpret them the way that they want to. That was the only dream I ever had, you know, is just getting these specific things that I've written out there. If someone had wanted to give me like a $100 million signing bonus and I'd be this great big pop star and I'd have to write all these songs that had nothing to do with how I felt, I probably wouldn't do it. Because uh, it would just be another job and I can't do just another job
0: when you were a teen and wearing the skinny jeans and playing shows at the vfw halls and really immersing yourself in the punk scene emo scene where you lived at the time what was the difference between you looking for that and then finding it it's a good question because
1: i picked up a guitar when i was like nine years old and i liked a certain kind of music then which was top 40 mainstream i was like nine years old it's too young to really have many cool bands that I was listening to but I remember when I started my first band we didn't know what genre to make it we were all punk influenced or hardcore influenced and I kind of surrendered and I let the other guys think of what you know we should be And they there like let's be a post-hardcore band and then that was my first experience with that kind of music and then once they kind of introduced me to that it's like the whole world kicked open for me I finally found a genre That was mine. It didn't feel like it was my parents or it didn't feel like it was my brothers who are the Gen Xers. It was stuff that was contemporary happening and being created at the time that I was a teenager. And so playing in those bands and being introduced to that music is why I'm here doing what I'm doing now. It was so important for me back then. And and it's important for my mental health. That's the way that I was going to have my voice and express myself. You know, I couldn't be like just your standard rock musician when I was younger and feel comfortable doing that. It had to be this post-hardcore music, and it had to be this punk music or this emo music that had to be the vehicle for me to be myself or express myself or get myself out there.
0: When you see someone on the street, hypothetically, one of your really good friends who understands your struggles over the years, knows about the addiction struggles, knows about the bipolar, and they ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing emotionally? How are you doing mentally these days? and you're passing on the street, so you don't have a lot of time. What do you tell them?
1: That I'm all right, that I'm getting there. If I have like the three seconds and they're asking me that, I'd say, I'm all right. It's been hard, but I'm way past some of the worst things. So I'm okay now.
0: That was my conversation with Ian Haluviak, a.k.a. Killy Idol. Soundcloud.com slash I now have a Tee Public store where you can buy Scream Therapy merch. So head over to ScreamTherapyHQ.com, support the podcast, and get some fancy new duds. Big news over here in Scream Therapy land. The Scream Therapy book, Scream Therapy, A Punk Journey Through Mental Health, will be published this spring by Mansfield Press out of Toronto. The book features my story and the stories of others who use punk rock as a catalyst for mental health. To pre-order the book, go to screentherapyhq.com book. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Screen Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klohomin Nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. That's ScreamTherapyHQ.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well.